Good morning. This morning I'll read from 2 Kings 17, verses 6 to 20. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled, it, he settled them in Halah, in Gozan, in the harbor Hebor River, and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations of, that the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that had provoked the Lord to anger. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord had warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenants he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that as we approach your word, that you would make us very tender of heart and sensitive to what your spirit is doing. Father, I certainly don't claim to know what each heart needs to hear this morning, but your spirit knows us intimately and knows where we need to hear correction and reproof, where we need your grace applied abundantly, and where we need to hear tender words of encouragement so, Father, I pray that your spirit would be working and we would be tender and sensitive to how he's working in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably for, for most of you, the months of you know, June, July, August, it's summer. Uh, for me, it's baseball season. And for the last two sermons, I've said absolutely nothing about baseball. You knew that wasn't going to last, right? Uh, there's just too many incredible stories from the world of baseball not to use at least one of them. Uh, and one of the stories that has really kind of captured my attention over the past couple of years is the story of the pitcher R.A. Dickey. 
I, I know Doobie knows who R.A. Dickey is. Uh, anyone else? No. Pitcher? Right now he's with Toronto. Um, he came up, he was drafted in 1996 with the Texas Rangers. He was a promising young pitcher out of the University of Tennessee. And he was offered initially an $850,000 signing bonus to sign with the Texas Rangers. Sounds incredible. But one day, one of the team doctors looked at a picture of R.A. Dickey in a Team USA photo. He was pitching for Team USA at the time. And noticed that his right arm, his pitching arm, was hanging a little oddly. So the, the doctor said, you know, we need to look into this. And they had his arm x-rayed and realized that he is missing a ligament in his elbow. And it's not damaged or torn. It's just not even there. It's gone. Uh, R.A. Dickey says that the doctors told him they're amazed that he can even turn a doorknob without experiencing excruciating pain. It's just a bizarre kind of thing. Well, he tried to make it in the major leagues. Matter of fact, that $850,000 signing bonus was immediately decreased to $75,000. So, I mean, that's a huge hit right off the bat. And he, he tried to make it in the majors, but it became abundantly clear early on that he just didn't have the stuff to be successful in the major leagues. His, his earned run average, I'm talking baseball lingo, expecting you all just to keep up with me now. Uh, his earned run average, how many runs he gave up in a game just skyrocketed. And it was clear his 88 mile, of fa- mile an hour fastball just wasn't good enough. Put yourself in, in his shoes for a minute. Okay, the story turns really cool here. But put your, shoe, your shoes in himself. No, put yourself in his shoes for a minute. You've worked through high school and probably before that in Little League and, and, you know, travel teams and high school baseball and then college baseball, and you have this dream of making it to the major leagues, of pitching at that level. It's like every little boy's dream, right? And he's worked and worked and he's there, and then all of a sudden, boom, gone because of a picture, uh, because of a missing ligament, I'm sure if you had asked R.A. Dickey what he was, he would have said, I'm a pitcher. Not I'm a student at University of Tennessee. I'm a pitcher. That was his identity. That was his future. That was his, his goals, his aspirations. And it was gone. It turns cool because R.A. Dickey learned how to throw a different kind of pitch that doesn't put the same kind of strain on the elbow. It's a weird pitch called a knuckleball. Uh, it's weird because it just does weird things. It doesn't have a predictable trajectory. It just kind of dances, and, and Major League players are baffled by it. And he's been incredibly successful, so much so that in 2012, he won the Cy Young Award as the best pitcher in the National League of the Majors. Cool story. But there's that moment when you're like, his whole identity has been taken from him. Maybe that's happened to you, or maybe it's happening to you. Probably not with Major League Baseball. But maybe you've worked through high school and and through college with the dream of of being a doctor or a lawyer. And you just get the rejection letter after rejection letter. Nope, not this med school. Nope, not that law school. 
Your whole identity and sense of purpose was kind of wrapped up in that. That's, that's who you were. That's who you were going to be. That was your future. And, and it just seems like it's been taken away from you. Or maybe it's a relationship. And you thought, there's my security. There's my sense of peace. There's my future. And, and it, it's gone. And you're left with a question, well, now what? Those kind of questions, I think, give you a little bit of a sense of what Israel must have been feeling when they were taken from their land. Their land was their whole sense of self and identity. It was the core of what God had given them. He had said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land. It's your heritage. It's your inheritance. Their whole sense of purpose was tied up in that. Their sense of well-being and of security and future and hope, it was all tied up in that. And it's taken. What now? The, the passage that was just read describes how Israel, kind of the northern part of the kingdom, was taken into exile into Assyria. Uh, what you notice is if you read the book of First and Second Kings, that from the time of Solomon on, there's this kind of steady decline, steady, progressive decline in Israel. Things just keep getting worse. And at this point in Israel's history, they're nothing more than a, a vassal state, a servant state of Assyria. Hoshea is just kind of a, a puppet king in Israel. He has to do what the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser, tells him to do. And he has to pay tribute to the king of Assyria. Eventually, Hoshea gets kind of fed up with that situation, tries to make a secret alliance with Egypt and the Pharaoh, and stops paying his tribute to Assyria. But the Assyrians are going to have none of that. Uh, so they march on Israel, march on Samaria, the capital. They lay waste to every town they come across. They lay waste to the countryside. They, they kill, they rob, they plunder, they take people into exile, and they lay siege to Samaria for three years. When the three years is over, the city eventually falls, and all the people are taking, taken into exile. That's a historical event. It happened in 722 B.C. Uh, the southern kingdom, the southern part of the nation of Israel, Judah, held on a little bit longer. They weren't quite as far down the road of depravity as Israel was. There's a few more bright spots in their history, but eventually the same thing happens to them. You can read about that at the end of the book of 2 Kings. Bad king after bad king comes along, and they go into exile too in five. 86 BC, not to Assyria, but to Babylon. And the Babylonians, again, lay siege to Jerusalem, destroy it, and even worse, destroy the temple of God. The most precious thing to Israel, the temple and the land, is gone. It's ripped from them. And they're left questioning, how did we get here and now what? Well, if you read through the book of Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and you read carefully, it's pretty clear how they got there. They got there to this place of judgment by God because of sin, because of covenant unfaithfulness. 
They were in relationship with God, and this relationship came with tremendous blessings. God had said, if you'll be my people, if you will love me and be loyal to me and obey my commandments, I will give you the land. You'll prosper in the land. I'll make everything you do prosper. You'll be a light to the nations. Great blessings. But, if you break covenant with me, if you chase other gods, if you prove unfaithful and disloyal and disobey my commandments, well, that comes with curses. Listen to what Deuteronomy 28 says. Kind of one of those chapters we like to, to skip over. Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. I gotta be honest. Second Kings is probably my least favorite book in the Bible. It's just dark and depressing. You read it and it's just failure after failure, wicked king after wicked king, breaking God's commandments, doing horrific things, like sacrificing sons and daughters in fires to foreign gods. And it's a cycle, and you're thinking, get out of this. Repent, change, do something. This is not going well, Israel. When you go through 2 Kings, just flip through sometime and look at the kings of Israel. Not one of them, from the time of Solomon on, is a good king. Not one. It says over and over again, they were wicked. They did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Judah, again, a little bit more delayed, a little bit brighter at times. You have kings like King Josiah, King Uzziah, King Hezekiah. They were good, they were great, but not perfect. And still the exception to the rule. Even in Judah, bad king after bad king, Manasseh, the worst, burned his son in an offering to a foreign god, set up foreign idols and Asherah poles in Yahweh's temple. And 2 Kings 24 says, Babylon comes against and destroys Jerusalem because of the sins of Manasseh, for the Lord was not willing to forgive anymore. Just these grotesque sins. And you're thinking, how did they get here? Well, the text we just read gives you some good insight. They got there because of idolatry. Idolatry was the root problem. It said in the text, if you were paying attention, that they worshipped worthless gods and they themselves became worthless There's a truth in the Bible. You become what you worship. 
If you worship the true and the living God, if you worship Christ, you become more Christ-like. You share in God's attributes, his qualities, his holiness, his love. His... But if not, if you worship worthless things, you become worthless and depraved. It, your mind becomes futile. You're given over to futile ways of thinking, to, to blinded minds that can't see the end of the road, can't see where the, the path is taking you. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you've got a friend, and the friend is in a dating relationship, maybe engaged, and, and you can see that this relationship, it, it's no good. It, it's just not good for them. It's not going to work out. You and all your friends can see it, but they're just blind to it. Love blind or whatever. Or maybe as a parent, you can see in your, your kids that, you know what? This group of friends that they're with, it's going to lead them down a bad path. Or these decisions they're making, it's going to end up in no good. You can see it, but, but they can't. They're, they're blind to it. Well, that's the nature of sin. It, it blinds us. We're often blind to our sin. I'm blind to my sin. And it reminds me of how important God's word is. How important the Holy Spirit working through God's word is. It's that outside perspective. I'm blind to it, but scripture lays me bare and exposes all my sin. But I could put a mute on the Holy Spirit. I can, I can turn them off in my ears. That's why the community of faith is so desperately needed. We need together to be in each other's lives, sharing, knowing, being able to say, brother, sister, you don't see this, but we see it. My wife does that well, but I have other good friends who can come alongside me, and it is so important as the community of faith, because we're blind to our sin. Israel was blind to their sin. You read this, and you're thinking, how can they not see where they're going? It's because sin blinds. God knows that. So he kept sending prophets. Prophets to expose their sin. Prophets to kind of serve as, as prosecutors of the covenant, to lay out the evidence in front of the people and say, here's what you're doing. Here's what you signed up for. Here's the agreement. You promised to love God, to be loyal to him, to obey him. But look it. There's Baals and Asherahs and foreign gods on every high place. And you're doing horrific things to one another. You're not living up to your covenant. Be warned. Punishment's coming. God sent prophets. He sent seers to expose the sin, and to warn the people. But Israel was a stubborn and stiff-necked people, it said. And they, and they shut the prophets down. Shut them up. We don't want to hear it. And so God does the unthinkable. He judges. He punishes his own people. And, and it's unthinkable because of how he does it. He uses foreign pagan nations and he takes away the land 
what they had been promised from the time of Abraham was a land to be a great nation. To, and it's gone because of their sin. Because God punishes through people, through nations like Assyria and Babylon. Habakkuk was one of those prophets and he saw what was happening. He saw the evil and he said, God, how long are you going to let this happen? Do something. Punish your people. And God said, okay, I am. I'm sending the Babylonians to be my rod of justice. And Habakkuk said, the Babylonians? Uh, They're worse than us. How can you do that, God? But Israel had long presumed upon God's grace. They had thought, because we're God's people, he surely won't judge us. But God sends disaster. And it's disaster, not just for Israel or Judah, who go into exile. It seems like it's disaster for God's plan. For God's purposes. See, Israel was never to be just a nation unto itself. It was never supposed to exist or receive God's blessings just for itself. It existed to be God's agent of redemption, to be God's agent of his mission in the world, to be the city on a hill that would point people to God, to the true and the living God. And it seems like when you read 2 Kings 17 and Israel goes into exile or a few chapters later when Judah goes into exile and the temple's destroyed, you think you just take a stamp and stamp the end. It's over. Oh, what now? Well, the end of Israel is not the end of God. Uh, The end of Israel's tenure in the land is not the end of God's purposes and certainly not the end of God's faithfulness. God's doing something new. Those same prophets that were God's prosecutors, uh, they come and they offer hope. They're hope bringers. And they say, what you have lost in exile, God is going to restore And they paint this picture, prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and on and on. They paint this picture of a a glorious return from exile and a healed land and renewal and prosperity. And I know the people who were in exile are thinking, great, we're going to get to go back home soon. We're going to get to build a temple again. Great, we're going to be blessed again and prosperous again. Yes. And to some degree that happens. About 70 years after the temple is destroyed, the people return from exile. Uh, They resettle what is now a fairly barren land. Uh, They rebuild a city and put the walls back up, and they build the temple again. But it doesn't quite cut it. It's not the same. It's certainly not better. They're not a sovereign, independent kingdom. They're still under the boot of Persia or Greece or Rome. And the temple, it's built and people celebrate, but the old generation that saw the original temple, when they stand before it, they weep because it's not as good. It's not as glorious. And it's as if the prophets, and this sounds glib, but stick with me, it's as if the prophets promised Disneyland 
but delivered Holiday World. It just doesn't line up. It doesn't match up. It's not as glorious. And you're left thinking, well, what now? Is this it? And you move into the New Testament, and there's this sense that the people are still expecting a more full restoration, a a complete return from exile, that it hasn't quite happened yet. And the New Testament authors pick up on that, and they say, yes, you're right. It hasn't completely happened yet. We're waiting for something more. Isaiah's words haven't been completed. Jeremiah's words, not fulfilled quite yet, but now in the person of Jesus, they're being fulfilled. Jesus is restoring and surpassing everything that the prophets led you to believe, all the expectations they set. He is going to be a better king than David or Solomon or Uzziah ever was. And he's a better priest because he never dies. And he's a better temple. He's not just a symbol of God with you. He is Emmanuel, God with you, tabernacling in your presence. He is the true Israel of God. And in him, he's leading his people to a better land. The book of Hebrews is just filled with the word better. Jesus is bringing a better covenant a better future, a better hope. What you lost, people, what you've been looking for, people, you find in Jesus in abundance and surpassing. The lessons that come to us from from 2 Kings are incredibly important lessons for us to learn. Let Let me give you three lessons, but before I do that, a clarification. These lessons were important for Israel to learn. That they were where they were because of their sin and because of God's judgment, but God was also a God who had a future and a hope for them. Those were lessons they needed to learn, and they're lessons for us, but let me make it very clear that us, us isn't America. Us is the church. Uh, The parallel isn't between America and Israel, uh, but the church and Israel. I say that because I know someone was going to come up to me and say, you know, I see that God's punishing us just like he punished Israel. Yes and no. It's possible that you can look at history, American history, and say God is punishing our nation. Abraham Lincoln did that. He looked at the Civil War and said this is God's hand of punishment upon us for tolerating slavery for so long. Uh, Others have done it at at various points in our history and said this is punishment for our wickedness. Okay, not going to quibble with that. It's very possible to look at circumstances and events in our history and say that's God's hand of punishment upon us as a nation. But... It's not the same as God punishing Israel because we, as America, as the United States, we're not God's chosen nation. Uh, We're not the city on a hill. 
And I'm not saying that because I want to bash America. I love my country. I believe it's a wonderful country, wonderful nation. But if we think the us is America, it's easy to dodge the critique, the, the reprove that is in these words, that is in these stories. If we point our fingers and say, yes, we out there need to be healed. We need to stop our immorality and our idolatry. We forget that these words are directed towards us as the covenant community of God's people. The church, that's the us. And if we mess that up, it's too easy to distance ourselves from the reprimands and point to them out there as needing to hear it when it's for us. We need to hear that unfaithfulness and sin results in judgment, in punishment. The people of Israel were in a covenant relationship, came with blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. The key requirement was love expressed in loyalty and obedience. And we're in a new covenant. And the responsibility is love and loyalty and obedience. And the words come, repent or else. They come through the prophets to Israel. They come through the prophets and the apostles to us. But that raises the question, doesn't it? Does God punish us? Well, again, it's a yes and a no. I believe as God's children, the answer is no. God doesn't punish us. He disciplines, he corrects. He doesn't punish me for my sin because he punished all my sin in Jesus on the cross. But, but, I've been doing a lot of study in Revelation 2 and 3. It's really clear from those chapters that God says, Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to punish. How do you reconcile those two things? You reconcile by remembering what Jesus said. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is truly a part of me. Not everyone who attaches themselves to Israel externally is truly a part of Israel. Not everyone who attaches themselves to the church externally is truly a part of Christ. How do we know then if we're a part, a part of Christ, if we're in Christ? Faith and fruit. True faith, trust in Christ that produces fruit and works in our lives. We have to be very careful that we do not presume upon God's grace and think just because we're a part of the external people of God that God won't judge or punish. That's exactly what Israel thought. We need to learn that unfaithfulness results in judgment and we need to remember. Remember our faith in the faithful one. 
some might look at these stories from Israel and try to apply them to us and say that the lesson is that the church needs greater resolve. Greater resolve to, to purge sin. Greater resolve to, to maintain faithfulness to the covenant and avoid sin and idolatry. Certainly, faithfulness is required. But we can't get the cart before the horse. It's not faithfulness that earns our acceptance before God, that, that keeps us in right relationship with God. It's faith. Faith connects us to Christ. Faith welcomes us in to his presence. It's faith. Faithfulness flows from that. We need to keep faith in the faithful one, in Christ who came and obeyed every covenant command, maintained covenant faithfulness even to the point of death. And we need to keep looking ahead to our future hope. Like the prophets pointed Israel to that future hope of restoration in full, we need to keep our eyes fixed on that. In October, I'm taking my family to, to Disney. It's the first time my kids, it's the first time my wife uh, will have ever been there. And we're driving. Um, like 16 hours, I think. Uh, I know the 16 hours there will go a lot quicker than the 16 hours back. Because on the way there, they have the destination in mind. They have the goal, the fun, it's going to make it easier for them to, you know, put up with their brother's stinky feet and their crowding space and dad's annoying music. It's all going to go quicker. It's going to be easier to deal with because of the destination in mind. That's a key to our identity and our life now, too. Our destination in Christ. Our hope, our future in him. Uh, scripture makes it abundantly clear that just like Israel was exiled in Assyria and Babylon, we're exiled in this world for a time. But we're on our way home in Christ because Christ has led the way for us. We're following him to our heavenly home. We're being led to that glorious place that's being prepared for us. That's our destination. And it makes, it makes life bearable. What in your life seems unbearable right now? Is it home? Is it work? Is it struggling through illnesses or injuries? Or What is it? In the, in the scope of life, when we're just looking at our life, our 80 plus some years, it can seem overwhelming but weigh it in the balance of eternity. And Paul says, it seems hard. It seems impossible. But compared to that, light and momentary. What act of obedience, what act of sacrifice are you being called to make that just doesn't seem possible? Weigh it in the scales of eternity. 
Keep your eye fixed on the glorious home to which you're traveling and things that seem impossible. You can't put up with your brother any longer. Oh, oh, but we're heading to Disney. You can't put up with his life any longer, with the struggle. Oh, but we have a heavenly destination. It puts it in perspective. Second Kings, the end of Israel's history, is filled with, with dark stories. Not fun to read and, I'll be honest, not fun to preach. And, and the news is filled with dark stuff, day in and day out. The world is a dark place. Scripture doesn't hide from that, and I love Scripture for it. But the Word tells us that this isn't the way it's always been, and it's not the way it's always going to be. Sin has done something, and God's going to do something better. My family's been reading the book of Revelation together. This week we read Revelation 21. Let me close with that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it exposes and, and lays us bare and how it heals. How it reminds us of the grace that is in your son, Jesus Christ, and points us to our glorious future. Father, we pray that when we look at life, at what we've lost, we remember that you restore, that you give back that you bless above and beyond what we deserve. Father, we pray that you'd help us to live in light of this great hope, to live in light of your grace, and to give it more and more each day. In Jesus' precious name, amen.